Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Elk Shape Podcast number seven. I just wanted to record an introduction today because uh, I had a guest come by earlier today, and we sat down and recorded, albeit short and brief, and my kids running in the background. It was gold as far as the content and the information and the nostalgia and the history. My dad's friend of a friend came over here from the other side of the state. I live in Washington, so it's probably a four, four and a half hour drive. He drove all the way over to talk elk hunting with us today, which was, I'm truly honored. His name's Sonny. He's in his 60s. He's a public land, blue collar elk hunter. I think he was a mechanic all his years until he just retired recently. He's been hunting the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness. If you don't know where that is, central Idaho, close to Montana border, and some of the most remote, pristine, rugged, beautiful elk country you've ever seen. A place where so many elk should live. They should just, they should thrive and they should be prevalent. But it's interesting to talk to him today as you will listen and find out over the last 40 years, it's changed quite a bit. This guy's been killing elk. I think he's shot almost 40 elk with a rifle in September. That's right. This is one of the few places where you can still hunt with a rifle while elk are bugling in September. It's very challenging to get into this country. Most guys would hire an outfitter, not this guy, Sonny. He's 100% blue collar, has his own stock, makes custom everything, builds an awesome drop camp, gets back in there, drops the horses off, hunts on his on foot, miles after miles. He's killed quite a few amazing bulls in country that's very unforgiving, formidable, really challenging, and just for him to paint a picture of how it's evolved. They are talking about a guy who killed elk back when there was no elk calls. You'd whistle at him, and you could get him to come in with just a whistle from your voice. So true voice calling and how they slowly learned how to do the elk calling and, and all the things that it takes to be an outdoorsman and to be a horseman and to be a sportsman. And this guy's just full of rich history and nostalgia. And I just get off listening to old timers who, honestly, the only thing different between me and him is that 30 years, health, fitness, that's it. This guy is an 18-year-old boy in a 60-something-year-old body. His eyes light up when he talks about the elk bugling, the wallows, 
all his adventures, all his close calls, and he's just tough. He talks about what it takes to hunt in the backcountry. I think he took an axe to the thigh, you know, sutured it himself and put a little hydrogen peroxide on and didn't want to come out of the mountains and kept hunting and killed a bull. This guy is just everything that I hope we don't lose, that this next generation of hunters can produce tough, blue-collar, public land elk hunters that want the challenge and the reward of doing it all on themselves, especially in the backcountry. And uh, we actually get into talking about wildfire and, and wolves and predators and and the landscape of the elk population down there now. A lot of you know that the elk are not doing well down there, and they haven't since the reintroduction of wolves. And uh, you're talking about a guy who um, killed 38 elk, I believe, and then for the last five years hasn't killed an elk. It's not like he forgot how to kill an elk. There's just hardly any elk left in there, which is super sad because if you were ever to have a chance to go into the Bitterroots, the Selway, the Frank Church, anywhere in there, it's where God created it for elk to live. It's unbelievable. It's amazing country. You know, it's interesting talking to Sonny. He's a wealth of knowledge. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Please give us a review on iTunes or whatever that means. But thanks for your feedback. And if you guys want to reach out to me, look me up on elkshape.com. You can find my email. Hit me up and let me know what you're doing or follow me on Instagram. It's uh, Dan the Fitness Man. And appreciate you guys following along. Hope you enjoy the show. Record. Check, check. Check, 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 Okay. All right, welcome to Elk Shape, episode number seven. Today, I'm joined by my Faja, Rod Staten, and a new friend to us, Sonny, what's your last name? Kwaniger. And where are you from? Startup Washington. All right. And we got together today to talk about hunting elk and potentially grouping up, sharing notes, and talking about possibly maybe even sharing a camp down the road here. So um, I don't know much about Sonny. I just know that he's been hunting elk in Idaho for 40-plus years. He's probably forgot more about elk hunting than we'll ever know. So we're going to hit the record button and see if we can get some elk knowledge from him and just kind of see where this goes. Thanks for coming and driving all the way over here, guys, and uh, let's get down to business. So, Sonny, how long have you been elk hunting in general? Um, boy, started hunting back in 1960. All right, so you have seen it change quite a bit. Yeah. (laughs) If you would, expand on what what it was like in the early days, maybe in the greatest days, and and where it's at now, and and all the the glamour and hardship and things that you've learned about elk hunting, and yourself, really. Well, if you take it back that far, I was pretty young at that time, but started hunting with my dad and my grandpa. We lived in White Pass. And my grandfather was involved in, in releasing the first elk into Washington State out of the, the boxcars that came from Yellowstone back in, back in the early 40s. And at that point, we hunted here in Washington State, in Washington State, on White Pass as a family deal. And I hunted until 41 years ago. I got shot at twice in the same season. And I gave up on it there. It was too many people. And my grandfather who was born in April of 1900, started hunting with my, is my second cousin, Joe Blake over there in in Pullman. And at that point, they started going into Idaho. They had an old truck, four horses, and a 55-gallon drum of gas. And they went as far as half of that drum of gas to take them, and they started hunting. It turned out it was right in the middle of the Selway Bitterroot. And they, there was very few trails back there at that time. There's a lot of, of Forest Service trails now, but they cut a lot of their own trails. But back at that time, there was they, if, if they saw anybody at all for a two- or three-week stint, there was, there was very few people around. 
Um, I started going in 1976 with my dad to the same place, and we all hunted together as a family deal, second cousin, grandfather, and dad, and, and camping in the same place. We pack in, uh, give or take, let's say 15 miles, steep country, straight up and down. And back in those days, there was, you would see three or four elk a day. Now, it doesn't seem like a whole lot, but it's a big area, and, and it, the season starts on the 15th of September. It's a modern firearm. Uh, it's Area 17 in Idaho, and it's still open today as modern firearm on the 15th. And, of course, everybody knows the rut starts around the 15th. And uh, you could actually call them and bugle them. Well, back in those days, I, like I say, I was green at this and and at first you could whistle with your mouth and call an elk because they would actually respond to it they they weren't afraid of anything at that time then we got to the the tin whistles and we got to the tubes and the reeds and went through the the generational change of getting better and better at it um of my my 40 years plus hunting there i've shot 36 elk with 38 shots. I'm pretty proud of that. They're dead when they hit the ground. But when you call them in to 25 yards from a long ways away, it's not a long shot. And I'm a head shooter. I don't like to waste meat. And you got to pack it too far. You don't want to put a bullet hole in them. Conversely, the old guy that I ended up hunting with was my grandfather's buddy. His grandfather taught him that the more lead you put out there, the more likely they were to run into some of it. <laughs> so we would pack elk out that he shot and it'd have bullet holes all over it. And of course, mine had one in the head or one in the neck. So he, he, uh, he criticized me highly for you know taking that chance of shooting an elk like that. He called me Annie Oakley because I would put, use one shot and he'd use a half a dozen. So <laughs> anyway, so um, it progressed from 1976 with my dad and me going back and camping with them to 1980, again, Grandpa was born April of 1900, so in 1980, he was 80 years old, and he got to be too old to go. And my dad had some physical problems, and he says he didn't want to go anymore. Well, I was just getting hooked. I was four years into going there, and I really, it was an experience. Just to get there and get back is a challenge. And ended up, I called Joe, second cousin, and said, do you want to still go? And he says, yeah, let's, let's do it. So we told my grandfather and my dad that we were going to go ahead and go without them because when you go with them, you held this, moved that, didn't know why, but you were there to take care of whatever they needed to have done. You didn't know why, you just did it. And at this point, they said, you'll never get back alive because it's, it's a very hard trip. It's steep, it's hard, it's tough. Stuff happens, you have to be pretty well prepared. And uh, we went. We were there six days. We got two elk. We were back in eight days, and they were just totally amazed. But we, we learned our lessons from them, how to pack a horse, you know, how, how to do what you do, how to camp, how to survive back there, because there's no safe ways. You don't see a footprint or a, a gum wrapper or a beer can for the whole time you're there. Mid-70s, early 80s, the progression of calling, and then... Maybe the heyday, was it in the 90s? No, if you go back to when we first started in 76, you'd see three or four elk a day. You'd bugle a couple of bulls, you'd chase them, you might get them, you might not get them. But as time progressed on, there's packers in the the fringe areas that pack in and do drop camps for for people, or they bring guides in. There are certain areas for certain packers, they can only go in certain places, and, and they would have a full clientele for the year. They'd have somebody 
or a, a camp full this week, then the following week, then the following week. But it got to the point where, I don't know, I guess fortunate because as many as I got, but you work hard to get them, but they would be back there for a week and they wouldn't get them, they wouldn't come back again. So in some years you might see a dozen people that would were passing through. They never stayed where we were, but they would be camping in the area someplace, drop camp or something, but they, they wouldn't get elk, they wouldn't come back. Very seldom you saw the same people two years in a row. If they got an elk, yeah, they typically came back, but then if they didn't get one the second year, you didn't see them the third year. It, the, the rotation of people, I don't know of anybody that went back more than one or two years in my 40 years, never saw them again. You know, they just passed through, didn't see nothing, then went away. I, I was referring to it earlier. As you drive in, the drive, the 30 miles into where we, where we park and, and, and pack in from, you look at the vehicles and you'll see Florida license plates. You'll see Chicago license plates, Wisconsin license plates from all over the United States. These are people who go to sportsman shows. They see the packer in his booth with his cowboy hat on and his big mounts in the back of the, the booth and the pictures and everything and say, yeah, there's an elk behind every tree. If you give me your $7,000 for seven days, I'll get you one of those. And it doesn't typically work out like that. But, you know, you look around and think, man, there's one behind every tree. I got to get one, right? So... As that rotation went through, the name cha the names didn't change for the Packers. They were generational. There was a couple of them that had been there a very long time, four generations. They're still there today, but they've sold their permits to other people that are doing packing in the area. But um, been a lot of fires over the last five or six years, slowed the hunting way down because it burns big areas and then pushes the elk to other places and what have you. We continue to go to the same place. But the progression as it went on, um, like I say, you might see uh, in any given year somebody passing through, but never on a constant basis. So it was a rotating mass, if you will. Um, the, the trails were on. Where we go in, you can go on through into Moose Creek Ranger Station or down into the Selway. It's a long ways. It's 15, 20 miles of steep country to get there. But um, but you never see them. There, there's packers on that end, too, that pack in, but they never pack clear into where we're at. So we're pretty, pretty remote. In 2016, two years ago, I went in and I stayed 31 days by myself. Uh, the old guy, he quit going five years ago. He's going to be 90 next month. And he went until he was 86. He had a pretty good run. He started in 1959 with my grandfather and finished with me five years ago. And he went every year, wow. no matter what. And what's amazing about that guy, he, like I say, he's going to be 90. He's had both knees replaced, both shoulders replaced. He's got two stints in his heart. His left eye is totally blind. We call him Mr. Lucky. But uh, he, um, um, he'd still be going if I'd take him. I mean, he's just the old the old school tough you know and just the neatest guy he was a teacher at at a college for for like uh, 38 years and he just just a neat guy and i learned a lot from him he learned a lot from me we 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 combined our knowledge he learned from my grandfather i learned from my dad who did it all their lives and we combined that knowledge and and we survived at it we had our we had our I, I should I, I keep a, a diary every year of every day traveling what have you and we have stuff happen that 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 you make you make stories about I'm showing you scars here there's one in front of my leg where the axe stuck in it opening day it came off the he was chopping the tree it hit the axe came off and stuck in my leg well I drag out the sutures and the oxygen the hydrogen peroxide and you sew it up because I only got 12 days to get an elk I'm not going out without one so you continue to hunt I got it got one three days later. 
So uh, it's one of those things that you, you adapt and overcome. It's, it's, it's tough countries. There's no safe ways and no doctors. You go prepared to, to take care of stuff. But um, progression on as you move on into the, the later part of our hunting back there, it got so we saw less and less elk, even though we're really, really remote. And it's prime hunting area. There's wallows. There's, there's swamps. There's high country. There, it's, it's prime country for elk. And you never see anything smaller than a raghorn. No spikes, no two points, no three points. It's strictly the big guys that do the breeding, and they usually have their cows in their groups and what have you in their harems, but uh, very seldom see a small elk. So if you bugle one in, um, it's because he's, he's either a big perimeter bull uh, on the outside or it's actually a herd bull if you can suck him away from, from the cows. But as time went on, and, and I'm telling you this based on my, my experience for the last five years, in five years I've seen three elk. That's a drastic change from going out and seeing a couple every day, which you get excited about. You know they're there, just a matter of getting lucky and run into one, to where if you're a couple of years, I didn't see any elk. And you hunt every day. You hunt hard. You're up at four. You get back home in the evening soon enough, to, long enough to, to get the horses out and get them fed because they're hobbled and they got to eat too. And then you eat and you get, go to bed and you do it again the next day. And you go to a different area and you hike out every day. And... Uh, well, in, in 2016, I was there for 31 days. My GPS said I walked 53 miles in those 31 days, and I didn't see an elk. I saw a sign. I saw rub trees. They'd been there earlier, but the, the thing that stands out in my brain in 2010 was the first wolves I heard howl, and that was, two, that was 2010. And it was the first year they issued a, a, a wolf permit. You could buy a wolf tag. It was like 350 bucks, if I remember right. Today, as a non-resident, I can buy three of those tags, and they're 32.50 a piece. Mm-hmm. A resident can buy five at 32.50 a piece. Um, that's the upside. The downside is they're very nocturnal. All you see is the sign. You don't really see them. They're nocturnal. They're not out during the day. You very seldom see. Um, uh, I've never seen one in the wild. Cougars, a lot of cougars, a lot of bears. Cause you're in a remote area and there's a lot of a lot of predators um idaho if i've got this right they understand they've got a predator problem you can buy a non-resident hunting license and hunting tag and and with that hunting uh, elk tag you can shoot a bear and go back and they'll give you another non-resident elk tag and then you can go out and shoot a cougar with that same tag and they'll give you another non-resident elk tag they haven't got to that point with the wolves but i think that's coming too because there's right. so many of them so for those listening basically if you have an elk tag non-resident elk tag is around 416 dollars if yep. you have that and you got your non-resident hunting license and you have an opportunity kill on a bear you can punch your elk tag take your bear out go check your bear in pay for the bear tag and then no no that, you, you just swap they just give you another tag you don't have to buy a bear tag you use your elk tag to kill the bear Right, so don't you have to pay for the bear tag? Nope. Wow. And then they give you another elk tag, and then if you go kill a cougar, and this is explained in the regs. Okay. If you sit down and read them. And then you go kill a cougar and go in, they'll give you another elk tag. Where I'm at, I don't have that opportunity. I'm back in there quite a ways. And a long ways from any any, uh, uh, game departments to do that swap out. But... um, in the early years, this is another thing that happened. In the early years, there used to be as many as three and four bears in every drainage. And there's drainages. I mean, they're all around you. And we would see as many as eight and ten bears a day. In 1980, if I'm right, is when Mount St. Helens blew off. When it blew off, I'm coinciding this only because I remember it that way, whether it had anything to do with it or not. There was dust there from St. Helens. There was dust everywhere from, from St. Helens when it blew. But in 1981, when we went back, there were very few bears. Well, bears eat 
huckleberries. There used to be huckleberries on every, you could pick a whole hat full of berries off of one bush. I used to make pies back there and cobblers back there. In 81, there wasn't a berry. And on every leaf, there was a little mark like a blight. And there wasn't a berry, a berry anywhere. The bears all went away. So if you see one or two bears a year now, it's it's uh, a surprise because there's no feed for them to feed off of. So that was a change from when St. Helens went off. So in 2010, you're on year 30, 35, somewhere in there in the same remote country same of place. Idaho, central, we'll call it central Idaho. Selway Bitterroot. Selway Bitterroot, yeah. unbelievable, remote, unforgiving country, and you've heard wolves for the first time though now tell us about the first time you heard them what did you think it was an ambulance way nope, back there no nope, exactly it was very exactly? and we're we're camped in in a uh, it's called long prairie it's it's a long flat area where it has feed for horses if you don't pack hay and they have to forage and when i heard it i knew exactly what it was we'd been hearing about it from yellowstone the group that they put in yellowstone and started they were starting to spread out over montana and and wyoming what have you but they actually planted some in the back country of idaho also and um, my understanding is they came from the north. The, the wolves that we had here were much smaller wolves back in the day. We got rid of them for a reason, and now they've reintroduced them. But the ones they brought back, they came from the northern part of Canada and from the plains area. And they're used to running miles and miles and miles. And if you look on the Internet, you can look up guys that have shot wolves that weigh 160 pounds. We call them land sharks. They, they can take a, a deer and elk down by themselves. They're huge. And they're not, they're not really user-friendly because they don't eat what they kill, typically. Um, I think if you look on YouTube, last winter there was 37 cows killed in Idaho, and they didn't eat one of them. They ate all the fetuses out of them, but they didn't eat the elk themselves. They just left them lay. That's uh, kind of a waste. But the, the wolves that were here before were smaller and not, not nearly as capable of taking down an elk or a moose. We see a lot of black moose back there. I haven't seen a moose in 15 years. Oh, wow. But they've all gone away. It, we camp on what's called Mud Lake. It's about a three-acre three area of mud and grass and what have you. And we've always seen moose there. And last 10, 15 years, I haven't even seen a moose. Mm -hmm. So, And the, the wolf sign is so prevalent. It's everywhere. You can't go any place on the hillside without seeing the packs mark their areas. You'll hear them, you'll hear them howl right at, at dusk. And where we camp is in the bottom of this valley. And to go hunting every day, I, I was always guessing. I knew I was climbing 900 to 1,000 feet every day, every morning to go out and go hunting, to go up over the ridges. They're on these ridges above us talking to each other. Actually, I think triangulating, okay, let's go kill something. But they're, like I say, they're nocturnal. You very seldom see them during the day. When it snows, there's tracks every place. But they're not, they're not just right out there where you, where you can, can see them to kill them. I got a tag to do it, but you don't see them. Wow. So you've seen kind of the evolution of, you know, no fire suppression in the wilderness, which isn't, you know, either good or bad, depending on what angle you're looking at. Um, I think it's good, kind of for the most part, but uh, you've also seen predators get introduced back in there as well as uh, quote-unquote reintroduced, we'll say. Uh, and then now you saw three elk last year in 31 days, and you're hunting in remote country. Oh, no, no, in 31 days I didn't see any elk. Oh, that was in 16. Zero. I saw zero. Oh, saw zero. And I was, out, I was out in the woods every day. I walked 53 right. miles. But, you're walking, but, you have stock. I mean, you're covering country. Uh, well, I walk every day. I, I, I pack in and I walk out of camp. Once I get an elk up in the tree, hang it up in the tree when you shoot it. And then, of course, you don't shoot in camp. It's out of camp a mile or two. Yeah. You go back to camp, you 
overnight. The next morning, you take the horses in, pack the elk back to camp so you can control its its destiny. There, the predators are going to get into it sooner or later. Okay. So that we pack it back into camp, and then from there, depending on weather, if it's real cold. I've seen 16 degrees. You, if, if it's below 32 degrees, you can hold meat for about eight or nine days. And we don't skin it. That's, that's odd, I know, but the skin's a natural meat sack, unless it's really hot. We have meat sack, you know, you've got the, the uh, cheesecloth with you to put in, put over them. But if it's really hot, then we skin them. You have to to hold the meat. And it'll get down to, to 32 typically. We're, we're, we're actually camping at about 6,400 feet at, at a low spot there. And it'll get down to, to 32 almost every night. So you, you hang the meat up on a meat pole every night, and it stays out, and it air circulates around it every night. And every morning, you take it back down, and you cover it up, wrap it up in a tarp, put it in the shade of the creek, and it keeps it cold all day. But it keeps the flies on the, and the yellow jackets off, because they can, uh, flies and yellow jackets can ruin an elk in an hour. Yep. They literally can just ruin it in an hour. And when I talk about taking that meat and putting it up in the tree and taking it back down and lifting it up on the horse and taking it off the horse, you got to remember the old guy, he was the brains, I was the brawn. So all these years, I've done all the lifting. You, know, <laughs> you do all the lifting, and he does. he's the brains, I'm the brawn. Yep. And it's a lot of lifting. You get two elk, you got eight quarters, and you do that every night. Yeah. You're picking and lifting, and you're taking down and putting down. It's it's not for the weak of heart. It's, it, you got to be halfway stout to get to do it you know yeah. it's a lot of lifting if you think about it from the time you shoot that elk and put it in the tree there pack out take it down put it on the horse take it back to camp put it up in the tree and then up and down how many days you're there then you put it on the horse and pack it out the mileage out to the truck take it off the horse put it in back the truck then you drive it 180 miles to where we cut it up and, and grind it ourselves and package it we use a uh, industrial vacuum packing it's good for four years with no freezer burn and uh uh, it's a, it's it's a lot of lifting. It's it's not it's not easy. Let's say, if anybody's yeah. done it, they know what I'm talking about. It's yeah, it's a labor of love. So your um, your sweet, amazing backcountry experience has been kind of um, garnished a little bit. What do you see uh, your crystal ball happening to that country? Say the next forty years. Last year was a tough year. It was very hot. There was a lightning storm came through right before I was headed back. There. I was going to spend another 30 days back there by myself because I kind of enjoyed it. But it was really hot, really dry. Lightning storm came through. I've got friends that work at Elk River Ranger Station, and they called and said, don't come. I mean, where, you're, where you camp, it's not burning. But 15 miles south, 20 miles north, and 30 miles east, there's huge fires. And, and they don't, like you said, they don't fight them. So it's a matter of it's not so much the fire itself. It would have bothered me. It would have been the smoke. The smoke would have been horrendous right in that valley. It gets, I've been there when it's burning 100 miles away and you get smoke, you know. So, um, so last year was the first year in 41 years that I had not made the trek, oh, you know, man. which was really hard for me. I, I ended up uh, hanging out in Washington, and, and it, it's not the same. No. It just isn't. Not, not like that. In those 31 days that I was back there in 16, not a foot track. Not a footprint, not a gum wrapper, not a beer can, no sign of anyone being there. And when you're hiking, no sign of anyone ever being there. It's it's pretty remote. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, I guess we'll we'll kind of wrap this up. This is gonna be a shorter one, but I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were on, or maybe why you are such a do-it-yourself guy. 
because there's a low road out there and I, you know, where you can hire someone to guide you. You can pay the big money to play. You can get landowner tags. You could go hunt better states that don't even have wolves. What is it about the do-it-yourself Idaho hunt that intrigues you so much that where you're doing everything yourself, you're packing in yourself, you're putting in your own camp, wall tents, hunting on foot in the backcountry. Everything that you're doing is hard. Nothing that you're doing is easy. What is the allure? Well, I, I'll take it back further than just my hunting. My great-grandmother came in the state in a covered wagon. They actually homesteaded up in a place called Malot up in Okanagan. And in that wagon, they had a, they bought a new Winchester uh, uh, repeater. They bought a, an anvil that weighs 200 pounds, and they bought a, a plow that had a wood, a wood frame. And I have all three of those. It's a 25-35 carbine. They learned to shoot on it. My grandfather learned to shoot on it. My dad learned to shoot on it. I, I grew up around hunting. So the hunting part came easy to me, doing this thing with the horses, because that's, that's a whole different thing. You, you, you can hunt all day long, but if you've got to deal with a horse that doesn't like the stinky smell of an elk, or I've shot bear, they don't like that, you have to learn to deal with that, because they've got to pack that animal out, the distance out to the truck, and they've got to deal with it. And like I say, we don't pack hay. So you, it's a whole different set of circumstances on top of the hunting. You've got to take care of the horse. It's, it's like being the packer, taking a client, only you're the packer and the client. You both. So the, the allure is the accomplishment. I, like I say, haven't gotten one, this would have been the fifth year. And it, 36, out of, uh, uh, 36 out of 40 years, get one, and then not start not getting them. You spend a lot of money. You spend all year training the horses, keeping them in shape, and, and having the equipment to drive all the way from where I come from. It's a 1,200 miles round trip to drive. You've got to have a good four-wheel drive, a good trailer, and know how to use the rigging because the rigging is my grandfather's stuff. It's sawbucks. I don't use the, the other stuff. I use sawbucks. And, and no, it, it, there's so much that goes into this. I spend year-round you know, playing with it, getting ready, make sure everything's fixed, make sure everything's going to make it through the trip because once you get back there, there ain't no safe ways, no doctors. You're not going to go buy something you need. you got to have it with you. So the allure is more the challenge of just being able to do, just going and making the trip, the challenge of getting there, getting back because it ain't easy. The trails are straight up and down. I can been hurt more times than I can tell you, but you just work your way through it and, and move on. Yeah. So it's it's a challenge just to get there and get back, and that's what I enjoy. So it's pretty much the most rewarding type of hunting out there. It is. You know, it, it is. requires the most sacrifice, but also in turn gives you the biggest reward. The bonus is if you get an elk. That you pull that trigger, and that's when the work really starts. Because then the horses really got to work. You got to really work, and and it becomes very long days to get that meat out. Because I'm there for the meat. I it, I'm not there as a trophy. I showed you the picture of my barn. Those are only because that's the first elk I shot or saw. And I shot it because I wanted to fill the freezer. And I, I live on elk meat year-round. I'm down to about four packages right now because I haven't gotten one in four years. And that's to me, that's a bad feeling because I've always had elk in the freezer to go get and cook and fix for friends. that have, They say, oh, I don't want to eat Bambi. Well, they eat this. They don't even know they're eating elk because it's shot before the rut. There's fat on them. We eat the heart, the liver, the tongue. We eat the whole animal. And, and it's, it, it's, it's quite an accomplishment with a bonus if you get an elk. Yeah. Basically. Awesome. Yeah. So this area is it still rifle September fifteenth? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's it's an early or it's one of the last ones. One of the last ones out there. Yeah, it's area seventeen, sixteen, sixteen A and then they added nineteen, which is down on the salmon. They added that to it 
eight or ten years ago. So it's a big area, but it's a remote area, and and a lot of it is the elk are getting. There's so few elk, they've expanded the area because they they need the revenue. Their revenue has got to be in the toilet because because they it, you can only go so many years. I'm fortunate, I'm single, and I can do pretty much what I want to when I want to, and I save all year for it. It's not a cheap trip. You buy gas all the way over there and back. You buy groceries. You buy the the permit and the non-resident tag and all that stuff, and then keep horses year round. And it, it it's it's an expensive habit or hobby, if you will. But it to me it, to me it, it's worth it. Yeah, I don't think it's a hobby. I don't. I think it's definitely a way of life, and uh, your history is really inspiring. And it's also sad. I mean, I wish I was more informed and had the stats in front of me here, but I do know at some point I read something that, you know, there was numbers in the tens of thousands of yeah. elk in the low, low, and down there less than Not 2, anymore. Thousand, and you haven't got an elk in that many years. It's, it's sad. And I'm in a place where you sh- if you're going to get an elk, you're going to get an elk. It, th- that area is so elk uh, user friendly. You got high country, low country. You got the bogs. You got it's it's just a perfect place to hunt elk. And you you walk through the woods and you think there should be elk here, and there's just no sign of them oh. because of. Uh, and I I I say this from my own experience. I would say predators mainly wolves. They're they're and you know you, you think about it. The state offers you know you, the resident can buy those five tags, and you look at the stats because I do uh, how many they actually kill every year. They don't get anywhere near the quota. No. Those wolves are in the backcountry where I'm at, where people can't access it because they've got two and three and four feet of snow. You can't get back there to kill them. And then in the spring, uh, uh, the the guys I know at Elk City they joke about they didn't used to see elk in town. Now they have herds of elk in town with wolves chasing them because they've come from the back country because they they the 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 forest service agrees with what i've talked with them about that they're group the elk are grouping up now one of the last elk which i've got on this one cd i'm going to show you he had 13 elk with him that's the biggest group of elk in 40 years i've ever seen typically three or four in a group if you're lucky this guy had 13 elk with him there's other people i've talked to that they shot elk out of 30, 40 elk, they're grouping up to protect themselves against wolves, we believe. Yep. Safety in numbers. Well, from my view, I, I like to hear, you know, get ideas from people that are anti-hunters, believe it or not. People that are non-hunters, we'll just say they, they're not anti, but they're non-hunters. They're not informed. And then you have hunters. You'll have different opinions of what, and I didn't want to talk about wolves, but I mean, it is what it Sorry, is. Sorry, it's, it's, it's a fact of my life. It's what we have to talk about. And it's a fact of my dad and I's life too. Yeah. Before I could go into how many, I've seen probably 20 plus wolves with mm-hmm. my own two eyeballs, but that's not what we're going to talk about. But what my point is, is you'll have a anti-hunter say that this is what elk were supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be grouped up big. Or there was too many elk, and now we have willows growing back, and we have beavers, and we have no more coyotes, and we have these cool birds. And uh, the argument that there was too many elk. And it's tough for me to accept what an anti-hunter would, would want, you know, their opinion, whether it be anecdotal or not, because they've never been in those mountains for 30 days straight for, for 40 years. years. That's experience. That's that's experience so speaking. they're from the outside looking in. They're in some, generally speaking, a big metropolitan city giving their opinion and voting on things that which they do not know about, which is tough for me to stomach. So I want to come at a positive angle and just make this podcast a platform to educate those that are 
least non-hunters, they haven't swayed towards anti-hunting. They understand that you are doing this for the meat. It is in our heritage. Man has always hunted. It's the first sport that was ever created. And wolves were probably poisoned and gotten rid of out west at some point. For a reason. For a reason. We brought them back, and they are probably impossible to manage at the end of the day. And the way we are trying to manage them now by a non-resident being able to get, say, three wolf tags, and then a resident able to buy five tags for hunting, five additional tags for trapping, Eight months of trapping season, 10 if you're on private, yet no one's going to trap these wolves back there. And you have to check your traps every 72 hours. And it's, they're smart. There's something, you know, we're basically out of bubble where something else is going to have to change. So for us, how can we educate the unpersuaded non-hunters that are uninformed about the wolf scenario? Because they think they're amazing, they're cool, and they are, but... They're really almost impossible to manage. The first recorded killing of a human was two years ago. There was a college kid in Canada that was surveying a wolf pack. They found parts of him. They shot the wolves. They found a wolf and found him inside of the wolf. That's the first recorded man killing uh, in, in the history of the wolves that they know of in a recent history. I believe, and this is, this has always been my hardcore stance. We talked about it at breakfast. My my stance has always been that it's going to take the people of in 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 Seattle outlying areas, Issaquah, which is a rural part of Seattle now. They have have cougars and bears every day on the news in somebody's backyard. Mm -hmm. And what it's going to take, because over there we're not allowed to bait them. You you're not allowed to do anything. You can hunt them, but you can't you no can't hounds. bait them. No hounds. Don't they changed all that? So now they're they're prolific and they're they're reproducing to where there's a lot of them around and my dad had the opinion my grandfather had the same opinion and I've, I've grown to the same opinion what it takes to convince people that are convinced that they should be there is somebody's going to have to have their kid get eaten Probably. And, and that's a shame to say it, but that's what it's going to take for them to understand these animals. We got rid of them for a reason. They don't have. They don't really have a place in our our ecological society. That they don't. They're to me. They're doing more harm than doing good. They say, well, the elk population is not really hurt. I have heard that population in Idaho is less than a third of what it used to be. Sure, I you know that's why I saw three and four every day, and now I haven't. I can hunt thirty days and not see one. Mm. You know, and and. Which one is going to draw in more revenue for the state of Idaho? The elk is. They're, people are going to go and shoot elk, not wolves, because they're hard to find and kill. It, they need the revenue. But it, it's, it's changing. You know, I'm, I'm the last of, of my generation. I don't have any kids, but I'm the last of my generation. Nobody will carry on what I do. And once that dies and goes away completely, it's, I believe it's going to get worse because nobody's going to be there to, to say, Guess what's happened over the last 40 years? Well, from an economical standpoint, it's tough for me to understand why we don't have a wolf season in, say, Washington or Oregon. When yet. we Yet. When we have people that are willing to pay for a license, pay for a tag, that money can help keep wildlife biologists out there um, in the mountains and, and pay for our animals to be managed and stay strong and prevalent, yet we don't have a season. We will spend money to have professional, basically, oh, yeah. fishing and game officers. The game, fishing game will go out and do them. They'll yeah. go do the killing. Right. It's sad. It's sad because it's a, it's a revenue model that is broken right now in those two states. And Idaho is still trying to figure it out. And it's real interesting to see what happens. I know that Idaho has the most wolves. Yep. Oh, probably double that of Montana. Yeah. Wyoming's up there, too. If you look at how they but spread they really out from Yellowstone. They really uh, don't know how many wolves are out there. No, they do not. No, they do Nobody not. Nobody does. 
Yeah, but I, I think of it as, as a paradox. You know, you think of all the money they could bring in from these tags if they would sell tags. And, and again, think about all the uh, wolves are in Idaho and how few are killed. Yeah. I mean, you look at how many they actually record. They, you have to report just like if you kill an elk, mm -hmm. you got to report that in. And they, there's so few of them killed based on the population. Think of all the revenue they'd make from tags and still probably not lose population because they're really hard to kill. They're hard to find. That's they're true. nocturnal. So. Well, with um, the power of today's, everyone's got a smartphone in their hand, the social media, I think hunters are at a pivotal point where we can make a huge impression on the undecided, the uninitiated, non-hunter, that we don't go down to the grocery store, write a check for the killing to be done. Right. We go right. ahead and do it the most ridiculously hard way, which we love everything about, and we go get that animal on their terrain, on their turf, on their home field, and we get that animal out, and we spend unbelievable amounts of money and time and energy resources to go get that elk, and it's precious to us. And it is about the meat, and the meat movement is going to save us hunters. I think if we can paint a good picture as to that we are sustenance hunting, this meat is organic, and it's the way that we want to eat, and uh, we can paint a better picture as to why you know, we're hunting besides the heritage, and we want to kill an animal. That's true, but we actually want to eat this animal Versus having someone else do the killing for but us. But you've got to have a venue for that. And like I say, I'm the last of my generation, my family. My, my little brother hunts. He's got a daughter. She's not a hunter. I've got a, an older sister. She's got two sons. They don't hunt. Um, uh, it, the, 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 the generation that I came from is, is the end of a generation that was brought up around hunting. The generation to now, they live in towns, you know, and they, they go to the arcades and play play games instead of going out and going hunting. Um, a lot of people think of it as totally barbaric. You know, and we're not going to eat that. We know what that is. We're not going to eat it. Well, you eat a steak, and somebody hit that thing in the head to kill it. You know, they, they, they take it. They generalize it. They, make, they put it all in the same pot, and it's not. It's a totally different situation. Like you say, you go out and kill it, spend a lot of time doing that, spend a lot of money doing that and because it's what you want to do. But the generations coming up now, I don't see that. I, I don't see it as a part of their, their life. Well, that's, uh, you're true. it's true. It's, a, it's my mission, at least. It definitely teaches many people about the way I hunt. I know I'm one of the few hunters out of all my friends. it's a small venue. And we're getting smaller and smaller. And you have that dichotomy or, of hierarchy where people care more about certain animals. No one thinks twice about cracking an egg or eating a fish or do you killing Money. An, you know, killing an ant yep. or a bee. But is a deer okay to kill? Uh, is an elk? Is a mountain lion? Is a bear? You know, there's this weird imaginary line where people think it's okay to eat this, but it's not okay yep. to kill that. And I think we should need to kind of help people understand well, where we came from. Cougar actually tastes good. It tastes like chicken. There you go. <laughs> well, hey, Sonny, appreciate you coming on. I know this was kind of impromptu, but I rarely get to sit down with anyone who's hunted for 40-plus years for elk, and uh, I'd hope to have you on again. And I'm actually glad we talked about Idaho and its evolution and its, and its wolves, and I think that uh, maybe we open the eyes to other people about one of the few places left in the entire world where you can hunt an, an elk in the rut with a modern firearm. And unfortunately, it's, it, it could be going away and, and happened in your lifetime. But thanks for coming on and sharing. Sure, appreciate, you bet. Appreciate having you on.